0: Are you ready?
1: I'm absolutely ready. I've never—I don't think I've ever been readier. You look That's... ready. <laughs> I seriously do not feel in any sort of way ready for anything. Right? How
0: how ready do you look when you've had a shower? I
1: have had a shower. <laughs> oh, have you? <laughs> I don't, but That's unlike, offensive. <laughs> but unlike professional footballers, I don't live with a hairdresser, so I'm just having to to cope.
2: Well, no, I was going to say it's becoming a bit of an issue. Like lots of people seem to be fascinated by whether by how players are getting their haircut.
1: Well, did you ever get in contact with
0: that hairdresser who did all the Argentinian uh, grey washes at Manchester
2: City? No. I wonder whether some clubs, I'm not going to accuse anyone of of illegality, might have included someone who can cut hair in their bubble.
1: That seems the most logical explanation and one that I'm surprised more people aren't making.
2: Because I can't really believe that like 400 professional footballers, even if they all share barbers like you 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 you're basically accusing a lot of people of illegality if if you're suggesting that everyone is going and getting their haircut it involves not only the players wanting a haircut but the barbers being prepared to do it and barbers aren't you know barbers probably don't want to get covid i don't want to sound dismissive to barbers but it's not like it's not like brain surgery it's not like that all these all these players are having brain surgery and they're like oh my god they've got their own private brain surgery like it is feasible that someone who has another job might also be able to cut hair. That's not completely impossible.
0: From my understanding, I uh, footballers are very particular about their hair and who does their hair and how correctly they do that hair. So I would imagine that there is um, a very, very specific plan to try and incorporate their important and bespoke barber into a bubble or indeed just illegally going to them.
2: And the other possibility is, I believe there might be an exception... For people in the entertainment industry, for beautification processes, I th- I have heard a whisper upon the the media grapevine that, that 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 is considered legitimate to to be in the entertainment industry and get your hair cut because it's important for you, you know as part of your job. So I think that's also a possibility that there is an exception for footballers, as there would be for actors and actresses.
1: And, and having seen the videos that Premier League footballers have to record at the start of the season, where they are shot very very close up saying their own names, I can tell you many of them need intensive beautification processes on a regular basis. So it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris.
0: Joining me are Rory Smith, he of the New York Times and an Odyssean voyage to cover the 2018 Copper Libertadores final. And Stephen Wyeth, he of BT Sport and Match of the Day and just a short trip to Salford to attend the 2020 <laughs> Copa Libertadores final. Um you were both excellent in your pursuits, although one made more effort than the other. Uh, by the way, Chinch and his wife, Nikki, are currently very courageously dealing with some family stuff at the moment. So our thoughts are with them. Uh, we miss him um, and hopefully our seven cat wonder will be back with us very soon. You'll have to deal with us in his absence. Uh, the food is this from Aaron Burns, who writes in response to Buffalo Ray George's suggestion that it might be nice in these difficult times to have somewhere to donate food to, If any of you are so inclined, uh, then this may well be of some help. Dear Mauro, Franco, Alessandro and Paolo. Great pod as always, says Aaron. Genuinely something to look forward to each week, particularly in these strange times. Yes, it's a different part of the podcast, but we're still putting that part in. I'm the project manager of the Fallowfield and Withington Food Bank. So just putting it out there, if people want to support a local food bank, not everybody who listens to this podcast is from Didsbury, Withington and Fallowfield, Aaron, but still, as thanks for the pod, you can certainly put our Just Giving link on Twitter. There are also a few other great food banks in the area too, he says magnanimously. Between all the mentions of places in Didsbury and now the food bank, I've never felt more attached to a podcast. Let's hope that extends beyond... Just M20. Uh, keep up the great work and thanks Seth, for filling an hour of time each week. That's from Aaron, who has given us the Just Giving site. And we will indeed put it uh, on all social media outlets. P.S., he says it would be great to have a return to the brief moments of joy within a football match. I feel like we need it more than ever right now for me, Clive, the ball hitting the crossbar and bouncing out beyond the 18 yard box without hitting the ground and bonus points. If it goes back to the player that hit the original strike, uh, that is uh, from Aaron, by the way, your assumption may well be that it's very, very middle-class place to have a food bank in Withington and Fallowfield because it's very close to where Steve and I live. Um, two things I'd say for context. One, There are a lot of students there. So come on, have a heart. And two, at least it's not Ilkley. So if you would like to uh, donate any food via the food bank, and there are many uh, great food banks, then uh, we'll put that on Twitter.
2: Hugh, I would just like to make the point that we also have a food bank, which is a (laughs) damning indictment of British society in
1: 2021. You just have things growing in fields locally, though, don't you? There's a, there's a couple of llamas, but I don't know how many people they feed. Don't be don't be confused by the name fallow field. It is not actually a fallow field anymore. Or indeed any sort
0: of field. The football is, and seeing that Chinch isn't here, I'll just tell you, after the phenomenal success of his suggestion last week, Rory is riding that wave into this week, crashing onto the shore with this also He's excellent back. subject idea. Are there managers' teams? and players teams why are some teams defined by the success or otherwise of the man who leads them and why is the story of others told through the prism of their players the two Manchester clubs will feature heavily in our discussion which is coming up in a moment just if we weren't already being a little too parochial but first to your correspondence which you can send to setpiece at gmail.com you can also get in touch via twitter facebook and we also have a youtube channel chris etchingham is first He gets in touch following on from our non-elite World Cup of last week when the tournament is contested by those players not barred as a result of their possible participation in a, as Rory said, putative European Super League. Dear Jimbo, Hector, Carney and Nelson, who would like to take a stab at those four names?
2: Jimbo, Hector, Carney and Nelson. Is it from Neighbours?
0: It's not. It is from The Simpsons. Nelson, you remember, is the guy that goes, and they are the bullies of Bart Lisa. Barton uh, uh, yes. Um, very so, good, very and, good. And I'm, I'm assuming Carney is, spelt spelled Kearney, but I'm assuming it's got the Gaelic lilt. Um, Dear Jimbo, Hector, Carney, and Nelson, really enjoy the latest modern World Cup for players not at the top European clubs. Well done, especially for leaving Jack Grealish until the last English player to be named, as it left me staring with incredulity at my phone with greater indignation as each name was revealed until his was finally mentioned. Also, with a lack of love for poor Florian Tovin, Can I suggest Andre Pierre Gignac instead, who, according to Wikipedia, so it must be right, has 126 goals in 207 games for Tigres of, guess who, Mexico. Keep up the jolly good work. You're a lovely listen. That's from Chris. How old is Andre Pierre
1: Gignac? He's at least 40. No, he's not that old. He went,
2: to, I think he was 29 when he went to Mexico. And credit to Andre Pierre Gignac for A, having his name the wrong way around, should be Pierre Andre. And <laughs> secondly, for having the tourists to go over to the other side of the Atlantic to play football. Not many European players do that. Good work, Pierre Andre Gignac. Um, but I think he's probably like 33 now. He's I suspect 30, he is he's out of the front reckoning. He's 35. 35. Yeah, yeah. Florian Tovan's not that bad.
1: <laughs> I, I've just got a beer in my bonnet. Whenever whenever I watch Marseille, I always feel as though, Florian, this is a game that you should be grabbing by the scruff of the neck. Your undisputed skills and powers of transforming a football game should come to the fore today, and they never do.
0: Well, I, I'd like to counter that by saying that uh, in a very successful spell as Marseille manager and Football Manager 20, Florian Tovan was not only my skipper, but also the top performer and eventually sold, I think, to West Ham for £45 million, pounds, which I think you'll agree is excellent business. I, I would but-
1: suggest that Football Manager need to relook at their algorithm <laughs> then.
0: Here's an email from Robbie Walls, who is neither Robbie Wells, who I incorrectly twice called our bear correspondent, nor indeed Robbie Harms, who is the correct bear correspondent. Robbie Walls writes this. Hi, guys. And maybe 215 episodes too late, but I recently stumbled uh, upon your excellent podcast and was very intrigued by your latest one regarding what a World Cup would look like without players from Europe's elite 15 clubs. I'm an aspiring football journalist, and at the minute... Also a very bored one. So I decided to use what you guys had discussed to create a virtual simulation of what such a World Cup would look like using FIFA 2021. At this point, and only at this point, Steve remembers that he'd ordered his son to do the same, but as he's not his real teacher, had no authority to make it happen (laughs) whatsoever. Frustratingly, continues Robbie, the game only has a select number of countries to choose from. These are all excuses that Stephen should have given with the likes of Croatia and Tunisia exempt, while the fact that the Brazilian leagues are unlicensed meant that I could not include domestic Brazilian players in the Brazil squad. I set about altering the squads of near enough all the international teams in order to create a 32-team tournament to see who would come out on top. Yes, I do have too much time on my hands. I tried to stick as closely as possible to Rory's starting 11 for the countries discussed on the pod and also randomised who was in each group. It may or may not be of interest, but I thought I'd share some of my key findings. As predicted, Mexico made a strong start to the tournament, winning their first four games before succumbing to a 3-2 defeat in the quarterfinals against France. Surprisingly, Colombia finished bottom of their group despite their relatively strong squad, while Holland also failed to progress, as too did Spain which of course won the competition in our completely arbitrary bracket. Yeah. As for England's progress, they emerged from a group containing Australia, Chile and Germany as group winners before then seeing off Brazil in the last 16, scraping through in the quarterfinals after beating Sweden on penalties. A win over Germany in the semi semifinals set up a final against Argentina who had beaten France in their semi, with England eventually bringing football home with a 1-0 win courtesy of a 90th-minute Danny Ings goal. The competition's top scorer was Lucas Acampos with six goals, with England's Dominic Calvert-Lewin in second place after netting five. As anticipated, Wales finished bottom of their group, although Scotland and the Republic of Ireland both did progress to the last 16. That may have been completely useless sending us in, but at least it was a good way to pass the time for me. I will certainly be working on my way through the rest of your podcasts over the next few weeks. Now, he's freed up his time after doing that on FIFA 2021. Keep up the good work. That is from Robbie Walls. And any correspondence, please, to menu at gmail.com. We
2: did, we did say in the course of our experiment that it was depend, we felt it was dependent on, on which way the brackets worked out. So... I think, I think, in fact, what, what kind of struck me about, about that very scientific experience was that you could have, if you'd have come up with different fixtures, you would have ended up with completely different winners, I think. So it doesn't surprise, I think you could probably make a case for a good seven or eight countries um, to have won it with those lineups. The difference being, and that's probably true of the World Cup normally, the difference being that maybe some of those countries were, were Mexico and Colombia rather than Germany and Italy.
0: Does this legitimise the neurosis we have over a World Cup draw in reality? When we talk about being the right side of the draw and the wrong side of the draw, lots so of people say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But actually, in this experiment, it's proved that it actually might be true.
2: But The last two World Cups, I think, have proved beyond doubt that it massively does matter. And it depends a little bit on, you need a shock. You always need a shock for there to be a proper wheat side of the draw. But 2018 was a great example that, without wishing to diminish Gareth's Braves boys' achievement. <laughs> Like England basically beat Colombia and Sweden to get to the World Cup semi-finals. That was, and then you know it only had to be only had to beat Croatia. You know, England would have made a World Cup final by beating beating Colombia, Sweden, and Croatia. Whereas, you know, it's, it's conceivable that you'd normally have to get past Italy, Spain, and Germany or whatever. So, there's always the right side of the draw, but it tends to rely on one or two teams messing up in the group stage or the last sixteen, and only then can can there be a truly weak side of the draw.
0: In that case, all hand-wringing in 2022 and beyond is completely allowed. Now then, who is the protagonist in the current story of your favourite football team? Is the success and failure... Told through the lens of the manager or a star player? Whose fault is it when things go wrong? Who is the chief architect of their triumphs? If you start to think about it, you realize there appears to be some, some narratives driven by the manager and others by the player or players. We think of Manchester City's recent accomplishments as being those of Pep Guardiola. And yet, if Manchester United rise or fall, is that because of Bruno Fernandes or Paul Pogba? And why, even though he appears to be under as much scrutiny as any other United manager, does Oli Gunnar Solskjaer take a relatively peripheral role? in this weekly drama. So are there managers teams and players teams? And what does it say about them?
2: So this, this was my idea again, twice, twice in two weeks. Let's, let's not forget this kind of level of productivity. This time, the difference is I've, I've done literally no research and it's just something I thought off, off the cuff and decided we, we could get an hour of content out of, which is probably ambitious if I'm honest, <laughs> but it, it started when I was at the Newcastle versus Leeds United match. Uh, recently in the Premier League, the English Premier League. Um, and I was watching Rodrigo Moreno. And Rodrigo's a really lovely player to watch. Rafinha is, is I think, the breakout star of that Leeds team. Like Bamford's getting a lot of the credit and a lot of the, and deservedly so. And Calvin Phillips is kind of the the, the talismanic player. But, but Rafinha was going to cost someone a lot of money quite soon because he's extremely good. But Rodrigo's just one of those really silky, elegant, inventive, technical players that, that I think everybody, every fan really enjoys watching, just someone who's extremely good at football. And I thought it was interesting that, that there's not really been a narrative around Leeds this season of, of, you know, isn't Rodrigo good or isn't Rafinha good or, you know, aren't these players kind of the next big, Rodrigo's a bit old to be the next big thing, but certainly Rafinha, you know, there's not that kind of, that that buzz around him that you get often for a new signing at a, at a lower level Premier League team and, you know, that speculation of where will he go next. and it And it's because I think we think of Leeds essentially as being Bielsa. And everything that happens at Leeds is, well, that's because of Bielsa. And Bielsa's done this. The focus is Bielsa, relentlessly. And it happens at quite a lot of clubs where they have a one of the super coaches. So if you think about Manchester City, City have complained for a long time that that their players don't win individual awards. It's a really big thing within, within Manchester City as a club. And to an extent, I think Manchester City is a fan base. There's a real sense that they're being picked on by by not winning individual awards, regardless of who votes for them. So even if, if it's the players voting, they're a bit like, well, it's all because of the media bias towards Liverpool. And even speaking to people within the club, you sort of say, well, look, you, you must be able to understand why Salah won Player of the Year the, one year and Van Dijk the next or whatever. And they just don't see it. They say, well, we won the title, so we should, you know, by definition, one of our best one of our best players should be the best player in the league. Now, that's not how football works in any way, shape or form. That's it just isn't. It's a it's a misunderstanding of how football works. That the best team doesn't always have the best player. That's not that's not true. Um, it's partly, I think, because City's success, it's it is quite hard, apart from De Bruyne, to pick out who is City's like absolute best player because they've got so many good players. In a way, there's an element of splitting the vote that's complementary towards City. But it's also because everything is credited to Guardiola It is Manchester City as a whole is seen as the kind of brainchild of Pep Guardiola. Everything that is good about City is because of Guardiola. Every success they have is Guardiola. You see it now. There's there's a little bit of a kind of narrative around Ruben Diaz solidifying things. Ilkay Dunduan's in great form, so there's kind of, isn't Ilkay playing well? A little bit of a sniff of Bernardo Silva's back to his best. But mainly, the narrative around City is Guardiola has solved their problems. He's he's, He's worked it out. It's another triumph. Guardiola's redefining football again. He's worked out a different way to play. He's done this, that, and the other. All of which is true, but it diminishes the amount of credit the players get and that made me think that there are teams where the credit basically goes to the manager, regardless of who the individuals are, as though the players themselves are just kind of these sort of robotic beings without any real agency who are just fulfilling the instructions of this one man. And then someone on Twitter actually suggested to me that if you look at the, look at the converse, you might, of which Manchester United is the best example, certainly the last year everything good about Manchester United has been attributed to Bruno Fernandes. And pr- prior to that, everything good about Manchester United tended to be credited to Paul Pogba. Or when that wasn't true, everything bad about Manchester United tended to be credited to Paul Pogba. And it's put Solskjaer in this interesting position. I wouldn't say he's like a liminal figure to it, but I think he is, he's not presented as being the person who has agency. He's presented as being the person who was reliant on Fernandes and Podba to perform. And if he can get, his, his role is to get them to perform. And if they perform, it's, it's, it's their credit i just think that's a really interesting dynamic and i wanted to ask chinch who's not here whether it feel it can feel like that inside a dressing room but he's not here so we'll just have to guess what he'd say probably something quite dim um but i think it's interesting and i I do think it's an interesting phenomenon that there are teams where players seem to get the credit and teams where managers seem to get the credit and it's actually quite hard to strike the balance that's really necessary because surely it's just a mix in every single situation
0: And it's actually the issue, not only that that is set up in the first place, but also that once it is established, it's very difficult to then change course. That ship will not be turned around. So as you say, that particularly with Paul Pogba, because the negativity surrounding him was supposed to be the reason, you know, for Manchester United's underperforming. But having said that, once you have established him as the main as the protagonist, as the main character in this story, you almost have to then say, well, the only reason that Manchester United are succeeding, having not done so because of Paul Pogba, is because Paul Pogba is no longer the problem. In fact, he is the reason why there is the success. And, and on the flip side of that in, concerning Manchester City, we'll try and split these up into a to a manager conversation then a player conversation. So let's return to Manchester City and, and, and talk a little bit more about that is to say that it'll be really, really tested when you've got a player like John Stones, whose resurrection is also a huge part as to why Manchester City have been uh, successful uh, this year, partly because of Ruben Dias, but Ruben Diaz is lost in the Guardiola mix, you, you you, can understand. But with John Stones being a an English player who's travails and successes have been a part of constant national discourse because he represents the national team over the course of the last four or five years do we see Pep Guardiola's influence on this storyline diluted slightly because John Stones is so important to their success this season but only because John Stones is that quintessential English player and we talk about so many parts of football in this country through those players that represent the national team.
2: That's definitely a thing that the English players, and the best example of that is Everton, where where basically Jordan Pickford received a, a frankly, kind of astonishing amount of coverage for someone who is a pretty, you know, we kind of know what Jordan Pickford is. He's a pretty good Premier League goalkeeper who occasionally makes a mistake. That's all Jordan Pickford is. Um, but and Everton are a huge club, but you, you kind of think that Everton's story to an extent is the Jordan Pickford story because he's England's goalkeeper. So whenever the, the main talking point around Everton tends to be maybe Calvert-Lewin's form or whatever, or hasn't Ancelotti done a good job, but there's an awful lot of Jordan Pickford in the, in the whole Everton discourse. I think with Stones, Stones is a great example because it becomes, hasn't Guardiola done well to revive Stones? When it could actually be why on earth did Pep Guardiola seem to write John Stones off for like 3 years? What what was going on there? Or that, why was that...
0: John Stones underperforming in a Guardiola yeah. team to which to yeah. all intents and purposes was exactly the same position that he'd held in in the successful Guardiola team?
2: Yeah, and he was hand-picked to be in like City signed John Stones thinking that this guy is a is a Pep, is a Guardiola-style defender. So you could make the case that you, that there is the, the more interesting story is hang on why is it taking John Stones like 4 years to find his form under Pep Guardiola? Is that John Stones' fault possibly? Is it Guardiola's fault possibly? I'm not entirely sure but it all becomes hasn't Guardiola done well to to make this player who was who'd lost his way you know put him back on path or put, put him back on the right path or whatever and i think it's it's the same kind of you go through the city squad like there's lots of players who who you could say well they've had an individual impact fernandinho gunduan bernardo this season the improvement in sterling sterling's probably the only one where Guardiola doesn't get credit but, does get credit, but Sterling uh, becomes a narrative in himself.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and, and actually during that, that's, that first season that they won the title under Guardiola, when, when Stones did play very well alongside Vincent Kompany, um, that was his peak prior to this season. The, the kind of talk about Raheem Sterling was, yes, Guardiola has improved him, but Mikel Arteta is the conduit. Um, in yeah. this specific case for positionally and understanding Raheem Sterling's role inside and being able to communicate that, yes, the words might have come from Guardiola, but it was through uh, Mikel Arteta. So he, he, even when it's not Guardiola, it's, it's his assistant coach and not necessarily yeah. fully the agency given to the player.
1: Is, is that not a bit like that banana bread theory that Rory's told us about in the past on the podcast where it, it would be too obvious to give Guardiola credit? You have to look for reasons beyond him. Because of who he is and the amount that has already been written about his brilliance, that there 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 comes a time in which somebody needs to dig a little bit deeper and look for the alternative reasons as to the ebb and flow of of what's going on within a squad and in terms of a team's form. So they start looking at the assistants or the sports scientists behind the scenes and, and bearing in mind the size of the team that Guardiola has assembled around him. I guess there becomes an awful lot of interest in in what role that those people play within the development of, of his team. And the other thing with Guardiola is, of course, he arrives with a narrative. He uh, By arriving as a super coach, he's very difficult to, to shift away from that. And even more so when you're talking about the volume of players that have either been signed whilst he was there or signed in anticipation of his arrival, that in terms of picking out one individual for brilliance, in terms of an award, or in terms of having a, a transformative effect on the team, that, that's a much harder thing to achieve than when you look at, say, the way that Virgil van Dyke came in to a Liverpool team that was struggling with defensively and suddenly became brilliant defensively. It's it's fairly obvious for everybody to see what a great season Virgil van Dyke has had under those circumstances. But when you look at Manchester City as an organic whole and the sheer number of of players that have been bought in to, to try and achieve a very specific job to improve them ever so slightly transfer window upon transfer window, capturing an individual's brilliance, even if that individual is Kevin De Bruyne, is is a lot harder to drill down into.
2: Well, it's also, I think it's harder to separate, isn't it? So you look at Ruben Diaz and, you know, there is a, there is a case to be made that Diaz has had as much of an impact on City as, as Van Dijk had on Liverpool. You know, City just don't concede goals anymore. Personally, I think it's not quite that simple in that I think the... It's, it's partly Diaz, partly Stones' is sort of return to form and partly the, the change of emphasis at City where there is now much more cover in midfield. And that that makes the defence look better, I think. And that brings you back to hasn't Guardiola done well to solve the problem? Mm. And I think even... So there'll be City fans out there, I guess, who feel that Diaz is not being given the credit he deserves compared to Van Dijk for the impact he's had on the team. And that is, that is a coherent, logical and to an extent probably correct argument. But it's not that there's a shortage of credit. It's that all of the credit goes to Guardiola or, the, or a sort of vast proportion of the credit goes to Guardiola. You'll get Diaz. It's partly it's quite hard to, especially with central defenders, it's quite hard to to kind of talk about what they do well because so much, so much of it's ineffable. It's like, well, he, he's a leader. What does that mean? I mean, it means he shouts. But if you, you can go to a football match in a silent stadium, they all shout. To be honest, they're all talking too much. They need to quiet down. It's annoying. <laughs> but- <laughs> We've got work to do, haven't we, Rory? Exactly. Stop. Stop interrupting us. Stop bellowing things. But I think it's there is a sort of there is a total of credit that a team can get. There's only so many you know. There's only so many ways you can praise a team. There's only so many things you can say. All that stuff. And Guardiola, and he's not alone, occupies so much of that that maybe the players do get a little bit overlooked. So De Bruyne has kind of broken through that a little bit. Sterling maybe a little bit. But you look at Aguero, say, who's had this incredible career in the Premier League. To an extent, the last four, four, five, last five years, the reason Agüero probably not got quite as much love as he deserves is just there's only so much love to go around, and most of it goes to Guardiola. And that that is kind of what you, what you get when you have a culture of the super coach, and that's what in Britain we we have now. The coaches are the real stars in the league: Klopp, Guardiola, Mourinho. To an extent, Arteta, Tuchel, Lampard previously, Solskjaer, even to an extent, like it's we think we think in terms of coaches, particularly. And that means the players, the players are basically
1: become interchangeable parts. And also, it's in some cases, as a, as a casual football observer, you watch the game and see that the difference a player is making. So that elevates them in your, your own mind. Whereas with coaches like Guardiola and Bielsa, so much of the focus is on the way that their teams play rather than the individual contributions, that that is why the whole comes back to them. With Guardiola, we see an awful lot of him coaching players on the way out of the tunnel, coaching them on the way down the tunnel at half-time, coaching opposition players at full-time. So, so much of the focus is on him that it draws the attention. And to come back to you talking about Leeds at the start of this discussion, because I was also at that Leeds-Newcastle game in the the thinner air, higher up, Hmm. that... I've seen, I've seen Leeds twice in the flesh this season and both games they have won by a narrow scoreline having been outplayed by their opponent for a large part of the game which completely contradicts the way that most people would view a Bielsa team going about their business that they either win handsomely or lose badly but whichever way they will play open, attacking, entertaining football from the first minute to the 90th. And I would suggest that against Burnley just after Christmas and at Newcastle last week, as we speak now, they were on the back foot for, what, two thirds of the game and actually dug out a result to their great credit. Mm. And, And an awful lot of that credit, you would imagine under the circumstances, should go to the players because they've had to adapt to the circumstances. But one way or another, the narrative still sits very firmly around Bielsa.
2: It tends to be ignored. Those results tend to be ignored. So I, I mean, I, I think you've been slightly harsh on how Leeds played at Newcastle. It was it was it was actually quite a good game. I thought Leeds were clearly better in the first half, and then Alan maximan came on and gave Newcastle an edge. But I agree with you completely about Burnley, that Leeds were Leeds scored early and then were under the cosh. But because it doesn't fit the perceived narrative around the manager, it's basically just ignored. It's well, that doesn't fit the the pattern. So let's just disregard it completely.
0: Is there an argument to say that that actually the, the managers will? encourage that even if it's not necessarily hundred percent true to allow them to be this firewall against criticism heading towards their players because there are, there have been multiple examples of of that in years gone by but also more recently obviously with the way that Mourinho tends to do the deflecting is. Is he not only doing that because he might be a massive megalomaniac and he wants everything to be about him, is he also doing it because there is a value to making the overarching narrative about a manager, about Jose Mourinho, so that if there are any deficiencies in his team, he is at least deflecting from them because he is trying to protect them. Or is that so archaic that actually that doesn't happen anymore because we are going to not only make the manager the protagonist of this story, we're also going to make him the antagonist of this
2: story. I think it's a much more a cultural thing that we we have, we've always in this country, in, Brit- in Britain, there has always been a cult of the manager. And if you go back to, to Steen and Shankly and, and especially Brian Clough, there is a massive culture in this country of the manager being the, the kind of all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipresent, inspirational genius. That's kind of how we see football. And I, I've always thought it's to an extent related to things like cricket and the tradition of, of the, the captain picking the players. And it's this is this kind of sense of this is one man's or one woman's kind of vision of how the game should be, and, and it's all, all to do with them. And that's been fed into recently by Mourinho, Guardiola, Klopp, a few others, Wenger to an extent, Ferguson, obviously before that. Um, but Mourinho in particular, who is basically just Brian Clough with a tan. That is Mourinho is is there is no manager more Clough-like than Mourinho.
0: And Mourinho doesn't look great in a green jumper.
2: No. And neither, if we're all, all honest, did Brian Clough. <laughs> but the, like, and I think people forget to an extent like quite how much of a, like a legacy Clough has left in terms of what we expect a manager to be in Britain. Like Clough's kind of long shadow is remarkable really. I mean, I, I don't remember, I'm 38. I don't remember Brian Clough as a good manager. I remember him getting Forest relegated, that's it. But even I know that Brian Clough was, you know, kind of set the template more than anything for what a manager should be like. And it's partly why we like Mourinho. All the quips, all the great press conferences, all that stuff is all straight out of Clough, the sort of Clough playbook.
0: You, you but, need the two things in that situation, don't you, with Clough? And Mourinho mar- marries up as well, is that you need both the on-pitch success, but that, that mercurial character that yeah. not only sets them apart, but also helps them with the media in terms of creating a relationship with the media, but more importantly for the media, creating the narrative, which the media can then build on.
2: And it then becomes all about them. So it, you know, if, if Forest to European Cup victories are all about Clough. I know that you know Trevor Francis and and John Robertson and stuff are, are kind of heroes in Nottingham, and and there'll be a generation of fans for whom that is they are of great names and great players. But really, the impact of it is Brian Clough won the European Cup twice. That's that's basically what what it comes down to. And I don't know I don't know whether it helps the managers. I've always been a little bit reluctant to think that managers do deliberately deflect pressure away from their players. I'm, some do, some don't. I'm not quite sure that they all do it on purpose. I think often, as, as I've said before, I suspect that we read far too much into what managers say immediately after games when they're not really, they're being pinned down with questions and they're just sort of saying whatever comes to their mind first. That They're not kind of necessarily like carefully considered philosophical statements. Often it's just the first thing that pops into their head and they want, they want to get it over yeah. and done with. But what I think is definitely true is that there are some managers for whom the, their belief is that what matters is what they think and what they, what they envisage and what they put into place. And I think Guardiola and Bielsa are probably the best two examples of that. There was certainly a point with City where they one of the one of the problems with City was that the players, whenever there was a problem on the pitch, would turn to the touchline and be like, right, what do we do about this? Rather than having a couple of players on that pitch who, who could sort it out for themselves, who think, right, do you know what? The manager's saying this, but I'm going to drop five yards and that will just plug this gap for a bit. It will stop the opposition pouring through it and we can kind of change the balance of the game. It was very much a... Pep, what do you want me to do? And I think that's not ideal, but that is what Guardiola wants and that's how he sees the game. And equally with Leeds, you've seen it this season, there are times when I'm sure that certain players on that pitch are thinking, what I actually need to do is kind to of stand over there a bit and or we need to drop or we need to push forward or whatever it is. But Bielsa is is barking instructions from the touchline and telling them not to do that. And I went to the Leeds-Barnsley game last season when Leeds... It was eventually the game that got, got Leeds promoted, when Ben White was still at Leeds. And after about half an hour, Bielsa decided it wasn't, whatever he was doing wasn't working. They were playing 3-3-1-3, three, 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 I think. And so he shouted he shouted at Ben White to go into midfield. And then two minutes later, he decided that hadn't worked either. So, so he shouted at Ben White to go back into defence and Gaitano um, Berardi, I think, had to switch from right back to left back. And then Berardi played as a defensive midfielder for a bit. And then Ben White back, went back into midfield, all within the space of about 10 minutes. And the players must have known, you could see them sort of talking to each other a little bit and you're too far away to hear what they were saying, but the players must have known that that what Bielsa was doing actually didn't make any sense at all and that they needed, it very much needed to get to half-time and then they could have a proper chat about what they wanted to do. It was, it was, yeah, 35, 40 minutes gone. He just needed to leave it alone and let everybody, and just hang on, basically. It was a moment for hanging on. But Ben White, who's a brilliant player, and Daitana Berardi, duly trotted to to each of the positions that Bielsa asked them to play. And at one point, I think Berardi shouted over, where am I playing? And he had no idea because, because he'd been told about three different things in, in 10 minutes and had clearly forgotten. But they're, they're so kind of enthralled to this, this wonderful coach and I'm not saying either of them aren't great coaches, that they will do as they're told. Um, but then you have the flip side of the play the teams that, that we think of exclusively through the medium of their players.
1: And in the middle... You have Tottenham. I was listening to a, a Leeds podcast um, ahead of that Leeds Newcastle game, and Leeds had lost their previous game against Brighton. And Ben White had, had an excellent game in that match. had been arguably the standout player. And the, the, the Leeds supporters within this podcast were effectively both crediting Ben White for being the outstanding player for Brighton on that occasion but then kind of damning him with faint praise by suggesting that it's easier to play as a defensive midfielder for Brighton than it is for Leeds. So it was difficult to draw comparisons about how well he did for Brighton in that match with how well he did for Leeds last season. But it, was, it effectively seemed, you know, it, to me, it ties in with what Rory was just saying, is that the interpretation was he was able to just get on with his job in the Brighton team, whereas in the Leeds team, the job keeps changing. Sitting in the middle
0: of this then, Rory, is is Spurs. We've just spoken about Mourinho being the archetypal narrative driving manager. So why does Spurs sit in the middle? Is that because of the, their quotient of English players, England players, as we were talking about with John Stones earlier, or is it more than that?
2: It's one England player in particular. It's the England captain. And Mourinho, Mourinho is... To all intents and purposes, in that same mold as Guardiola and Bielsa, that all of his, everything about his teams is, is attributed to him, good or bad. So, if there's a crisis at Man United, it's Mourinho's fault. If there's a if there's a a good run of form at you know Chelsea, it's it's Mourinho's credit. If Chelsea collapsed the following season, Antonio Conte starts referring to it as a Mourinho season. To the extent that having a Mourinho season semi enters football's lexicon to mean having a complete disaster of a campaign. <laughs> Mourinho is like, is, is like Guardiola, like Bielsa. It is all about him. He wants it to be all about him. As, as I say, he's the kind of the Wi-Fi ages Brian Clough. And and that's what he liked. The problem is, and you see that, to be honest, in, in terms of how he throws the players under the bus every time that something goes wrong. It's, well, everything I did was right. They, they got it wrong. He is trying to, to, he doesn't like that the effect of that narrative when it's bad, but he can't really escape it. But the problem is that at Spurs, and it's one, of the, it's one of the few reasons actually why Spurs wasn't really a good job for him, everything is also about Harry Kane. So if they win, it's about Harry Kane and how brilliant Harry Kane is because he's the England captain. He's Harry Kane. He's one of our own. You know, it's, it's kind of all, isn't Harry Kane wonderful? It's only when they lose that Harry Kane can't be blamed because it's, oh, well, Spurs have let Harry Kane down again. Should, do you think he should leave to win trophies? And it becomes Mourinho's fault because it's the manager not getting the best out of the team to get the best out of Kane. And that actually is, is the, the nightmare scenario for Mourinho where he doesn't get any credit for winning because Harry Kane gets it. But Harry Kane can't be blamed for losing. So Mourinho has to be blamed. He's, he's kind of in a no-win situation.
1: Harry Kane even got the credit after when Min Son scored four goals in a yeah. game against Southampton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was still actually the, 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 the creation of those goals by Harry Kane that was the real reason for their, for their success. The thing that always strikes me with Mourinho and others a, a bit like him, And which is what draws the attention so much towards them is this approach that they have that the team will play my way. Regardless of the players I have available to me at my disposal or the way that they have played previously, I believe it makes more sense for me to come in and ask these 25 individuals to change what they're doing rather than me adapt the way I go about things to suit their strengths. And that's why sometimes you have a circumstance where the manager drives a narrative, because once they have dug their heels in and determined that's the way that things are going to be, it becomes a lot harder to blame the players when things go wrong, because the evidence draws back towards the coach.
2: That's a really good point. And actually that sums up the cult of the manager thing. And it's something that applies pretty much universally that there is this this belief that you bring this one person in, and they get to change everything about the way that twenty five other people do their jobs. Rather than e- literally every other industry, where I think most managers would be like, "Well, I want to see what you've been doing well, and we'll keep on doing that. And then if you're not doing then there's, if there's things you're doing badly, then you know we'll we'll change the way we do those." Whereas with with football, it is literally the manager comes in. And it's like, well, I've always done things this way. So even even if I have a squad that is completely unsuited to doing it, we are going to do that, and that's if you think about it, really stupid, to be perfectly honest. And I'm, I was like, I've, I've been struck the last year or so, I guess, by, by Max Allegri's failure to get a job when his CV's got four or five Serie A titles on it, two Champions League finals. You know, he's kind of a, an elite manager, but all of these jobs have come up. Chelsea, PSG, uh, Spurs, I think, came up when he was unemployed and and they've all passed him by. And I, and I think it's basically just Allegri doesn't, doesn't pretend to have a philosophy. Allegri doesn't believe in philosophies. His, his whole thing is, well, I'll, I'll go into a club and I'll see what the players are good at. And we'll do that. And I don't think chairman or chief executives want to be told that. I think they want to be told, I, I have solved football and to win, all you have to do is implement literally all of my ideas. That is a much better pitch than, well, you know, you quite good at playing on the counter-attacks, so we'll probably play on the counter I don't, I don't really care.
0: And yet Carlo Ancelotti, in, in that same mould to a certain degree... Um, we'll always in that mould. Very much in that mould. We'll, yes, we'll we'll always get jobs for for some reason while Allegri doesn't. Maybe that's because of his ability to speak English, you know, and 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 the relationship that he's already had with this country. So he'll always be discussed.
2: But will he will he now get bid jobs? Well, he doesn't need to because he's done oh, them the, all. <laughs> but that, well, that's that's true. And yeah, is slightly a slightly special case, I suppose. But not bid jobs is dismissive of Napoli and Everton. But it's interesting that Ancelotti is now on that slightly lower run where the clubs are honoured to have him, effectively. So, so Everton are Everton can't turn down the chance to get Carlo Ancelotti, one of the greatest managers of his generation. They, they just can't. Napoli, sort of forever searching for validation in Italy. The fact that Benitez and then Ancelotti wanted to coach Napoli was really flattering, ultimately, for, for Aurelio de, de Laurentiis. Whereas, you know, your PSGs, your Bayerns, your, your Man Citys, your Man United, Man United are a bit different, your Liverpools, even Chelsea, They I think they want to be told I have a clear, Chelsea in fact definitely Chelsea. I have a clear vision of how to play football, not we're going to try kind to of do what is necessary and whatever suits to an extent that's Antonio Conte's logic as well, although I think Conte has a more has more of a defined style, more of a defined more of a defined tactical idea than than Allegri does. And I just wonder whether now we are so enthralled to this 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 cult of the manager, the manager's teams.
1: That if you if you're a manager who doesn't go along with it, you're actually at like a disadvantage. Chelsea is a really good case in point for this, bearing in mind how frequently they change managers. Chelsea are an owner's club, they're not a manager's club or a player's club. Because <laughs> uh, actually, what Antonio Conte did is he came in at Chelsea and very really, very quickly realized what strengths there were, what weaknesses he had to contend with, and adapted and and quickly. Decided on on a formation in a, a sort of first choice ish eleven, and in that first season they were brilliant under Conte as a consequence of him effectively dealing with his best hand as often as he possibly could. And it astonishes me what you said about Allegri that that makes so much sense. Is it because he won't bullshit people? Mm-hmm. Because he's coming in and saying, "Well, I'm a good manager of players, and I will transform them." And make them better than what they're already doing. That that supposedly isn't good enough. Yeah. And that a club like Chelsea, which changes its manager every eighteen months, also wants to change its footballing philosophy every eighteen months. That seems mental.
2: Well, it is, and it's and it's what's particularly crazy about it is the idea that that a manager's a a manager should sort of embody a philosophy when when that is completely impractical. So you could you I mean, Tuchel's made a good start, but it, it might be that it turns out that that to implement the style of play that Thomas Tuchel wants. Chelsea need to buy six new players. They may, they may not do, and Tuttle's a really good manager. I think they'll do really well there, but they might need to change their whole, you know, the, the whole focus of their squad so that he can do what he wants to do. And you think, well, actually, that isn't that really shouldn't be the job. The should, the job should be you get, you know, your recruitment staff and your technical director or whatever brings in the best players available for your budget to fit some sort of broad scheme. And then the manager says, well, I will I will I will adapt the way I work. I have mastery of all these different systems and all these different approaches. Just to be honest, it's only football. There's not that many. Do you know what I mean? It's not like there's there's hundreds of moving parts. You, you I saw a, a preview about Tuchel's Chelsea from Rafi Honnigstein on The Athletic. And Rafi's a, a really good journalist, I'm not criticizing him at all. But it was it was kind of watching Chelsea's fans expect from the new manager. And the answer was attacking an expansive football. Well, that's one of the two types of football. Because the other one is defensive and cautious. There's not, there's not lots of different types of football, and it is amazing. That there's yeah that, we, that that the model now and the model for, for ages has been not just now has been that you you change this one person and then you expect 25 other people to, to effectively relearn their skills to do something different. It, it makes literally no sense.
0: There is a, a, f- a fascinating comparison also uh, to bring in. Uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona uh, probably don't have time to delve too deeply into this, but with Barcelona, you've got a complete philosophy which the manager has to sit into. And more importantly, right now is the fact that Messi is so important. It is a player led team in its most uh, quintessential example. Um, And with Real Madrid, you've got somebody at the moment who is capable, as we've said over the years with Zinedine Zidane, of just marshalling a player-led team to be able to make them good enough to win three Champions Leagues in a row. But also what what Zinedine Zidane has is an, an access to a club because of his playing for that club. And he might not come in with that grand philosophical idea that we were speaking about, the cult of the manager being so important now that you do have to at least make a sales pitch that that's what you're going to bring. And he would have got that job because of that more than what he might have been able to offer as a manager per se. And that's also the case for Ole and Solskjaer, who you probably wouldn't have brought in to Manchester United if he wasn't a former Manchester United player, because there was nothing to suggest that he had either the ability to marshal these players who are, as we're saying at Manchester United, a player-led squad at the moment, with particularly Paul Pogba but also doesn't bring in any sort of notable philosophy. So we started off this conversation talking about the two Manchester clubs. We will finish the conversation by talking about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who sits weirdly, strangely, even though every success does reflect on him and every defeat puts him again closer to the sack. It still is, in, in a macro sense, Steve, not about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. It tends to be about the players. So where does
1: Oli fit in this whole conversation? Well, he's interesting to me in that he, he continues to be perceived as a lame duck manager, despite the fact that Manchester United have clearly improved in the last 12 months, and he is getting a tune out of Paul Pogba, which previous incumbents weren't able to do. Yes, Bruno Fernandes has made United more dynamic and has had a huge influence on things, but Solskjaer has quietly gone about developing both himself and the team to be better, yeah they are there are still bad performances and bad results, and getting knocked out of the Champions League was a particularly critical example of that. but in terms of how they have done in the Premier League, they have made progress. they've been fortunate that they've not had the kind of injuries that some of the other big clubs have had, and that he's, he's not had to, to take risks with players who might not have been 100 percent. but I also think the way that he is managing the situation. Is, is quite impressive. In his press conference ahead of, of the Southampton game, it was really interesting to see how well he dealt with the issue of racist abuse that players are getting on social media. He handled that in the way that you would expect a, a senior football management figure to handle it. And he also, the way he manages that, that situation, the press... quite intriguing in that he he spoke a little bit about the decisions in the recent defeat by Sheffield United in the open section of his of his press conference and then expanded on it in the embargoed section of his press conference for the for the written for the benefit of the written journalists in the the morning headlines in which he then threw out this line about how he thinks Manchester United are too nice they don't put referees under enough pressure and lo and behold that's the headline in in most of the newspapers the following morning that was classic Sir Alex Ferguson technique and it and it worked brilliantly and it, it, it sort of felt to me as that demonstrated that we're not giving him enough credit for the way he seems to have grown in into the role. There's still too much focus on the negativities, which of course there should be for a club like Manchester United and not enough credit for him as a manager for the things that he's doing well.
2: But the reason there's not enough credit is because the limit to what Solskjaer can do is get a tune out of Fernandes and podbert and it's, the the narrative over United last there has been a, a distinct improvement at Manchester United. It is undeniable. But what is the reason what is often credited as the reason for that improvement? He's a sort of thin Portuguese fellow who gives the ball away quite a lot, but somehow continually stores winning goals or creates them. And the the that then casts Solskjaer as the man who's kind of who's brought Fernandez in. So a bit of credit for Oli there and has has worked out a system to to get the best out of him, a bit of credit credit for Oli there, but ultimately the source of of inspiration for everything United have done is Bruno Fernandez. And now, because as Hugh said earlier, because for so long the source of all the problems has been Paul Podber, and that's a that's a whole loaded thing that that warrants further investigation. Why Podber has been singled out at, at United. Because you know, United have been presented for what, five, six years now as the problem here is Paul Pogba, that they don't have the right position for Paul Pogba, that Paul is not trying hard enough, that he's the wrong sort of midfielder. He's not doing this. He's too mature. He's doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because United are now quite good, that has to be addressed. Otherwise people might say, well, I, know, I thought Paul Pogba was the problem and now he's in the team and playing well. So it becomes that Pogba has has been re- revived and rejuvenated. And there's a little bit of credit for Ollie as in terms of managing the situation, as Steve says. But ultimately, the credit goes to Pogba. So it's Podbur and Fernandez who define everything at United. So there isn't room. There isn't. In, there's only a limited amount of love to go around, and it goes to Fernandez and Podbur, which creates the impression that Solskjaer is, is again a figure without actual agency. He's not the central protagonist of the story. He's just someone who's there, which means he can't be thought. You know, he can only get a limited amount of credit for all the stuff he's doing. Well, I think Steve's right that that Solskjaer doesn't get enough credit when things are going well at United. But I equally think he he doesn't in a way doesn't get enough criticism when things are things aren't going well because it's immediately flicks back to well the players are underperforming. And ultimately the job of the manager is to make the players perform. So there's again, there's a balance in all things and there's in there's not enough balance in terms of how we interpret Solskjaer's impact on United, I think.
0: It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. Normally, this is when Andy tells his tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. But over the years, we've also received your own soccer stories, which we like to filter into the show in Chinch's absence. So here is one. From John Corr. Greetings from Yanchep, 60 kilometres north of Perth in Western Australia, where I have become a great fan of SPM during the COVID period. My interest was piqued by your listener's story referencing the casual social football acquaintance with the Bulgarian international player. Uh, That, by the way, was in SPM 191, and it came courtesy of our old friend Ewan Haig. I felt I should share my experience, which occurred when holidaying with my wife at Club Med Bali in 1990. Club med activities included regular football matches involving 10 to 14 guests every second afternoon. As a former low-level player, then aged 33 and very fit, I was keen. One afternoon, I arrived at the ground to find two guests warming up and showing outrageous skills. Though they spoke very little English, I gleaned from one of their entourage that they were Fausto Pizzi, and Alessandro Melli, who had recently been members of the Parma team that had won promotion to Serie A. The first interesting development was that they vehemently insisted on lining up on the same team, despite the obvious (laughs) skill and experience imbalance that that would create. They would not countenance changing this condition of play, but did allow the game to proceed eight versus six as some patently inadequate salve to team equality. I would point out that no one else played football or had any skill whatsoever. The balance of players were mainly young children, 10 to 14 years old, and their parents. In goal for the Italians team was a 45 year old woman with a blue rinse, permed hairdo and no experience of the game. Needless to say, the pair were incredible, particularly by comparison to us. Goal after goal piled in, despite the best efforts of our goalie, who was a parent who had quite good Aussie rules skills. Their goal of the day involved them going the length of the shortened field, repeatedly volleying the ball back and forward about 10 meters to each other, culminating in Melly performing a perfectly controlled bicycle kick into the top corner. Each of their goals are listed as celebration between the two which seem to somewhat pointedly exclude their other mesmerized <laughs> team members. <laughs> I was in awe, but our goalie was able to make a few saves and as the Italians lost interest in chasing back in the tropical heats, we managed to generate a few scoring opportunities of our own via route one. Indeed, I had managed to put three past the aforementioned blue perm, which triggered a celebration involving me removing my shirt and sliding along the ground in front of my humiliated wife, who was watching from the sideline. Fausto and Alessandro took umbrage at this display, attempting to point out the massively lopsided scoreline and that their goals were better than mine. However, I continued to hold three fingers aloft as if I was Jeff Hurst in 1966. The irony was lost on them and they were spurred into hyperdrive, seemingly set on scoring as many sublime goals as quickly as they could to put me in my place, unaware that, as I was Australian, it was not possible to embarrass me. The final straw was when I blatantly handled before passing to a young kid to walk in our final goal, but denied the offense by innocently questioning what me ref in the face of their enraged and disproportionate protestations. They then fired in a couple of goals that were more power oriented than their subtle nuanced earlier finishes and declared the game over with a 27 to five scoreline. I rallied our team to shake hands with the opposition, saying to some of the kids, this may be a unique opportunity. Fausto and Alessandro were initially reluctant to engage, amazingly continuing to indignantly cite my handball offence. Eventually, they shook hands as they may have realised from my laughing that I was taking the mickey and that the game was not really that important. Melly eventually took my hands in his and kissed my cheek. They had a laugh, signed a few autographs for the kids, and we all parted as new best friends. Melly went on to represent Italy as a full international. Of course, when I knew either of them was playing for Parma or their subsequent teams, which included Inter, I would watch the game on TV with friends and family and casually slip into the conversation. Yes, I have played against them got a hat trick that day. Uh, keep up the good work. That is an excellent story from John Corr. If you have any like that, please do send to setpiecemenu at gmail.com where you can send any of your correspondence. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to uh, Rory and to Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed.
2: You've set the bar too high there. No one's going to be able to top that. I mean, Alessandra Melli and Fausto Pizzi being dicked. That is, <laughs> that is an outstanding <laughs> story. That is... That is better than any of the stories Chinch has told. We've buried the lead as well in today's podcast, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. That is that is and that is extraordinary. That is that might be the best thing we've ever broadcast.
0: <laughs> I, I do like the indignation. It's like, no, I'm sorry, that was a handball, and I'm sticking to the rules.
2: But that just shows like f- professional footballers are humorless folks, <laughs> humorless competitive machines.
1: I also quite like the fact that it was an Australian with a degree of self awareness. <laughs>